This message was presented at the GYC conference by many or by few in Louisville, Kentucky. For other resources like this, visit us online at gycweb.org. All right, well, let's get started. It is 12 o'clock. This session will go till 12.45, and then we'll have lunch. So let's have a word of prayer, and we'll begin. Our Father in heaven, we are so thankful that you have, that you have brought us here to GYC. Thank you, Lord, for, for a vision to, to bring us together, to press together, to, re, to be revived, to be able to find ourselves uh, experiencing uh, a personal revival. And Lord, have thine own way, Lord. Continue to convict our hearts as, as you sense we need to be convicted. And whether it's here or later, Lord, just speak. Show yourself to us. Speak to our hearts. And we pray that as we examine, once again, this subject, that you would bless us with understanding. And may we be able to take in something new, something that would be a tool that we can uh, be even greater witnesses for you. So thank you for answering our prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. So throughout the history of Adventism, and by the way, I'm a fifth generation Seventh-day Adventist. Whoa. (laughs) Um, On both sides of my parents, my dad and my mom. In fact, if you go to Argentina, I was born in Argentina, and if you you go to Argentina, um, you go to the Adventist University there in River Plate Adventist University, and you go to their library, and you will find books on biographies or stories of my family going back five generations as the ones who brought the Adventist message into South America, and particularly Argentina. Um, and, and what's, or rather, let me, let me rephrase it this way. There were five generations back, they were among the first to, to accept the Adventist message. The first missionary was Frank Westfall. Frank Westfall, who went to South America in the late 1800s and, um, and brought the Adventist message to South America. Like I said, my, genera- my family, five generations back, were the first ones to embrace the message. And it was um, a few years ago, back in 2012, well, relatively a few years ago, um, I had the privilege in the church of the Grants Pass of the Adventist Church in Southern Oregon to baptize the great-great-grandson of Frank Westfall. The son, the great-great-grandson of the missionary that took the message to South America, full circle. And uh, so it was quite a unique experience. And so in my life, I've been very, uh, I've grown up in, in, in Adventism. And throughout the history you would, you would have to agree that we have, as Seventh-day Adventists, formulated ways of explaining our doctrines from a biblical perspective. Like I said earlier, we were champions, are champions. We claim to, to, to present truth from a biblical perspective, and we'll have our, our scriptural references, we'll have our presentations. And if you go to any Adventist bookstore, you will find sets of Bible studies from a variety of sources. 
You have choices. You have 10, 12, 15 different Bible study sets that you can choose from to take into a postmodern world and start Bible asking or you know, offering Bible studies door to door to our postmodern neighbors that we know that live all around us. But as informative and educational and instructive as, as all these Bible studies may be, they mean nothing to postmoderns. Silch. Worse, it will make them run, screaming from Adventism. Why? Because postmoderns do not tolerate dogma, do not tolerate doctrine beliefs, as we have discovered, because there is no such thing. A claim to absolute truth is something that they completely dismiss. And so postmoderns, they will run the other direction if the offer is to sit down and let's have Bible study together. They won't accept that. Who are the ones who do? The ones that re return those Bible study request cards that we do a mass mailing of, the ones that accepted as a result of a door-to-door -door survey, they're not of the generation that was raised postmodern. They're of a different generation, an older generation, a modern age generation that go for that, but not for the, but postmoderns don't. don't. What is it that they really go for then? What is it that's, that's, that, that, that impacts them? What is it? What is it that postmoderns really want to know? And I'm going to propose that there's two, just two, simple questions that they really want to know. Just two things. Postmodern simply is asking the question, number one, how, how does your belief system, remember your truth, your truth make you and your family, family's life better? What makes your truth make you and your family's life better? And the second question they're asking is, how does it make the lives of others better? How does your truth make the life of others better? That's all they're asking. And the reality is, is when the, the answer to those two simple questions are satisfactory, then postmoderns begin to open up. And since postmoderns are asking those questions and not yet having discovered in Psalm 63, verse 3, it's a little bonus verse here, when David wrote of God, your love is better than life. Your love is better than life. I have a question for you because now, because this is the, the context of what postmoderns are just simply and really looking for, the question I have for you is of crucial importance because depending on how you answer this question will determine the kind of response that postmoderns make to you as they get to know you or hear what you have to say. And the question I have for you is this. Is your kind of Christianity worth sending out into the postmodern world? 
Not, I didn't ask, is Christianity worth sending out into the postmodern world? That's not what I asked. Because that's absolutely no doubt about that. Of course Christianity is worth sending out into the postmodern world. But what about your kind? The kind that you showed by your life early this morning. The kind that you showed yesterday after the evening session was after we were dismissed. The, the kind that you showed last week. The kind that you showed last year. Is that what the postmodern world is waiting for? Is that what it needs to revolutionize lives? Is your kind of Christianity worth sending out to the postmodern world? A few weeks from now, it's going to mark the 34th year anniversary of the Challenger space shuttle explosion. Many of you remember witnessing that firsthand. That was a tragic day when seven astronauts, shortly after launch on January 28, 1986, found themselves inside a shuttle that tragically exploded just 74 seconds into flight. Many Americans were watching this as the takeoff was live on television from the Kennedy Space Center near Cape Canaveral, Florida. And it was later reported, and this is, this is what just really moves me. It says, it was later reported that NASA managers had disregarded warnings from engineers about the dangers of launching in cold temperatures. They had failed to adequately report these technical concerns to their supervisors. Two things that come to mind when I read this firsthand from a source. First, there, there were disregarded warnings. And second, there was inadequate communication. Disregarded warnings and inadequate communication. Could these be, to some degree, could these be characteristics of what took place in this transition, this shift of thinking that has developed today as a worldview that has taken grip of our generation today? Disregarded warnings and inadequate communication. Invoking yet another similar but different sobering thought is an impactful sentence found in the book Christian Service, page 41, written by Ellen G. White in the late 19th century when she wrote this, Christian Service 41. It is a solemn statement that I make to the church that not one in 20 whose names are registered upon the church books are prepared to close their earthly history and would be as verily without God and without hope in the world as the common sinner. That those who, who profess Christianity, who profess Adventism for that matter, to bring it closer to home, those that profess the Christian worldview are as lost and without hope 
as those who profess the postmodern worldview. That is a problem. That is a problem. How in the world are we as a church going to eternally impact our postmodern neighbors and community when we ourselves are as lost as they are, but in the church? Not surprisingly, this, this inspired statement written several decades ago corresponds with recent findings of researcher George Barna. He discovered the dis disturbing fact that people who call themselves Christians but are not born again are, and I quote, a group that constitutes a majority of churchgoers. A majority of churchgoers are individuals who call themselves Christians, but in their practices and behaviors, etc., do not display any kind of demonstration or evidence that they have been, quote, born again from a biblical perspective. Could it be possible that to attend church and play the part for years, but remain lost? Because our claim to be saved is based on all but on all good but wrong reasons. What, what, what do we base our salvation on? How, what, what do we, what's the grounds by which we claim I have an assurance that I'm going to, when we all get to heaven, that I'm going to be there? How, what, what grounds do I have in having that kind of certainty? Is it baptism? You've been baptized? Membership? Health message? You're a champion of the health message? Is that the grounds? Long prayers? You impress others, huh? Leadership roles? You have a, a, a track record of being the go-to for the nominating committee and you've been holding leadership roles for many years? All of these things, all of the above, though, are good and acceptable. They're good things. None of them, none of them merit eternal life none of them none of them so does the term used by Barna's research group quote lost churchgoers also apply to many well Seventh-day Adventists I'm afraid so I'm afraid so yet if there was ever a cultural context a time period to exist in to live in as we do today, in which we must certainly understand what is a Christian and what the term really means, it's today in today's generation. It's today. As we said earlier, those that are younger than 35 years old today were raised in a postmodern post um, context. So these are, the, these are the generations that we're, we're missing the mark. The bottom line is, is that if we, look at, if we look at reports, it's we're missing them. We're totally straight out missing them. And why could it be that the average Christian or Seventh-day Adventist just frankly doesn't truly understand what it means to be a Christian? Do we know how to become and remain a Christian? Do we base on all the good but wrong reasons? And as I shared with you earlier, I, I grew up as a preacher's kid. I'm a PK. 
dad was a pastor. So on top of being a fifth generation Adventist, my dad was a pastor. And, and I made certain assumptions when I was a teenager. Since my dad was a pastor, I knew about Jesus. And so I figured that I knew Jesus for myself because I was, I was always present. I had a perfect attendance. I was involved in all things, Sabbath school, Pathfinders, everything. This was my life all the way through until I was 18. Then while I was a freshman at Southern Adventist University, I asked myself, could it be possible to be a fifth-generation Seventh-day Adventist on both sides of my family and not know Jesus for myself? Could it be possible? And the irony is this, that I enrolled as a theology major. I was on track to be a pastor myself. And now being left alone on this college campus with my parents overseas in the Philippines at the time and dropping me off, saying bye and taking off in a plane and leaving me all, all on my own now at Southern Campus, my world turned up, my life turned upside down. I found myself asking questions that terrified me. I was terrified at the thought that I did not know Jesus. I knew about him but did I know him? Did I have ownership of my faith? Was it my faith? Not my parents, but my faith. And if, if a postmodern were to ask randomly, ask Christians what they need to do to become a true, genuine Christian, it is highly likely that they'll get some of these typical responses. These are the kind of responses I've heard myself and at times, overhearing conversations of what, what do you need to do to be a Christian? And, and, I, and I, I listen. And, and these are the typical responses. Well, you, 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 need, to, you need to fall on the rock and, and be broken. Okay. How, how is one um, broken? Well, by, by giving your heart to God. Okay. But how do you give your heart to God? Well, by surrendering your life to the Lord. Okay, but how do you surrender your life to the Lord? Well, by laying it all down at the altar. Okay, which, which one? Um, how do you lay it all down at, at the altar? Um, by beholding the Lamb. Okay, how, how, do, how do I behold the, the Lamb? But, but, but by having eyes of faith. Ice of faith, okay, and so on and so forth. Did you catch what, what I'm trying to convey here? These responses, you could almost say amen, amen, amen to each one of them. But to the postmodern, it makes absolutely no sense. It's absolute nonsense. These intangible phrases turn off postmoderns. They walk away from that. They, they're so unclear. They're, not, they're clear to us, but, but they're so unclear to the world that we're trying to impact. It's no wonder that there's so much confusion. A survey was done in an unnamed Adventist Academy uh, before a week of prayer. 
And the question was asked to the students, what is a Christian? What is a Christian? You think of how you would answer that question. As I share with you, 98% of responses included something like this. Someone who does what is right. Someone who stays out of trouble. Someone who goes to church. Someone who dresses modestly. Someone who fasts and prays. Did you notice something? Did you notice? The answers are focused on what? On what you do or don't do. Did you notice that? The most common definition of that postmoderns in America are hearing. They're focused on what you do or don't do. Someone who does this, someone who does that, someone who doesn't do this and surely doesn't do that. That's what they're getting. It is no, is it no wonder that we're, there's a disconnect, disconnect. And if we, if we were to ask the same questions in the streets of Louisville downtown, Right now, during our lunch break, and we would stop people on the streets, I am certain that 90 to 95% of answers of what it means to what is a Christian, the answers would be what you do or don't do. And because that's the case, we have a big problem of why as Seventh-day Adventists we're not impacting this generation. And here's why. Here's why. It's possible to be a nice and good, well-behaved, law-abiding, postmodern atheist. <laughs> and in fact, there's many, many out there. They are the nicest people you could ever meet. Such as Himen Metzoff. I don't know if you've heard of him. He's known as America's friendly atheist. Yeah, he's, he has quite a following. America's friendly atheist. And then on the other hand, <laughs> on the other hand, we have backstabbing, unfriendly people who at times are the very ones that go to church with us. So if we merely define Christianity by what you do or don't do, we have a problem. We have a big problem. Because it's not, we're not buying it by what we're seeing out there and in the church. We got a problem. We got a problem. That means that we must have a better definition for Christians that than just mere behavior. We've got to have a much better answer. And where did our young generation, where did, where did our young people that attend our high schools and schools, where did they get the idea? Because this is the response was from a high school academy. Where did they get this idea that being a Christian is being nice and good? Well, they either got it from home, from the church, or school, or a combination of all three. But one thing is for sure, they did not get it from the Bible. 
Let's see it for ourselves. I, I take you to the scriptures, um, to Romans 3.20. Romans chapter 3, verse 20. New Living Translation says this. For no one can ever be made right with God by doing what the law commands. The law simply shows us how sinful we are. It does that. But no one can be made right with God by doing what the law commands. That verse alone debunks that being a Christian is based on what you do or don't do. Um, Galatians 2.16. This is the Good News translation. The translations are good to, to always, to, you know, check out different translations. Because they'll give you a clear perspective at times. Galatians 2.16 says, yet we know that a person is put right with God only through faith in Jesus Christ. Never, never by doing what the law requires. Never by doing. How about Galatians 3.11, International Standard Version? Now, it is obvious that no one, no one is declared righteous or justified in the sight of God by the law because the righteous shall live by faith. Uh, a few more, because the, the evidence is overwhelming here. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace ye have been saved through faith, and not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. And finally, Titus 3, 5. NASB, New American Standard Bible. He saved us, not on the basis of deeds, which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. So the Bible is abundantly clear that it's not by doing that defines someone as being a Christian. So if it's not that, what is it then? But now that we've looked at all these several Bible text. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you a pop quiz. Are you ready for a pop quiz? First question. Is it true and false? So it's 50-50. Come on. You got a pretty good chance of, of hitting this. First question. If a person gets to heaven, it won't be for being good. If a person gets to heaven, it won't be for being good. True or false? True. That's right. It won't be for being good. That's not what gets people to heaven. True. Here's the second question. If a person is lost, it won't be for being bad. If a person is lost, it won't be for being bad. Ah. Everyone takes a little longer, a little longer to answer to answer what is practically the same question. It's the same question. There's two sides of the same co of the coin. It's the same question. Because on the one hand, if on one hand, if, if, no, if we know that no one's going to get to heaven because they were good, then on the same token, we ought to also then conclude that no one's going to be lost because, because they were bad. They're both true. Why? And this is why. Because behavior is not the defining factor. That's, that's simply it. 
behavior is not the deciding factor. The Bible makes it abundantly clear that your behavior won't earn you a place in heaven. And it's not your mere behavior that will cause you to be lost. So if salvation is not based on behavior, what then is it based on? What is eternal life? What is eternal life? Are you ready for the simplest and clearest answer? Are you ready? It doesn't get any simpler than this. What is eternal life? Let's come to John 17, 3. Uh, John 17, 3. Why do we make things so, so complicated and wrong? And postmoderns, this is what they've been hearing from us for, for decades. And no wonder we're missing the mark and impacting them and winning them to Christ. Could it be that we've been missing the simplest answer to the question, what is eternal life? What is a Christian? The answer there is in verse 3. And this is eternal life. Can we read it together? That they may know you the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. That's it. Period. Period. What is eternal life? That they may know you. Kinosko is the Greek word. That they may know you. And you know what ginosko means in, in, the, in the general biblical use of that word to know. You know what it means, right? And Adam Kinosko, he knew Eve, and she got pregnant. And she begat a son. Because Adam knew her. Do you see it? To know kinosko is, 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 is there's an intimacy there. To know an intimacy, a union, an intimate union between husband and wife, biblically speaking, and, and to know each other, is to have that intimate, emotional, and physical intimacy that gives birth to a child. In the spiritual realm, that intimacy is, is manifested when there's a union of the will of God and our will becoming one. When the mind of Christ becomes our mind. And we have the mind of Christ. There's, an, there's a, a union, an intimacy there. Between God and man. To know God. Because when Jesus himself says, I never knew you. But, 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 but Lord, Lord, did we not do this and do that? I never knew you. I never knew you. But, 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 but Lord, I, 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 all this and that. But to know is to have an intimacy with God. I never knew you. And this is ironically coming from a God who, who knows all things, doesn't he not? He knows all things, but yet he says, I do not know you. Of course, what he means is that I know your heart's condition. I know it very well. I read it like an open book. But you have not united your will with mine for that intimacy that I've longed for, but you never chose to have with me. You see? So, if there's one line 
in today's lecture that I want you to remember in how to reach postmodern is this one thing. Christianity is not what you do. If that's what postmoderns hear, they're going to run as fast. They will not see you again. They'll tell you, I'll call you back. Hey, let's meet up. They're going to leave you hanging. They're not going to be showing up. You'll never hear from them again. If there's one line, it's this. Christianity is not what you do. Christianity is not what you do. But who you know. And I'm not done yet. And I'm going to take the time because I want you to write this because it's something that I would want for you to remember. Christianity is not what you do, but who you know. And who you know will change what you do. One last time. Christianity is not about what you do, but who you know. And who you know will change what you do. In Christianity, behavior is impacted. Absolutely. But it ought to be the results of who you know. Jesus says, eternal life is knowing my Father and me. It's who you know. It's who you know. Kinosko speaks of that intimacy. It's not merely to have an intellectual knowledge of him, but to have an, an intimate personal relationship with him, like the nearest and dearest relationship between a husband and a wife. And I plead with you, as, as you heal time and time again during this, this conference, why not, why not take this space, this context that we have these few days together, to just fall broken and say, Jesus, I, I give you all. I give you all. Take my life. Take my life. Postmoderns, they crave authentic relationships. They crave it. They crave it. And if only because it's the craving in every human heart. God wired us that way. They don't, they don't realize that or confess that, but it's, it's, it's a God-given longing in the heart to have, to crave authentic relationships. Authentic relationships. Consider this parable in Luke chapter 13. Let's take a moment to take a look at this. Luke chapter 13. Luke chapter 13, verses 24 to 27, and it says, strive, strive to enter through the narrow gate, for many, I say to you, will seek to enter and will not be able, when once the master of the house has risen up and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and knock at the door, saying, Lord, Lord, open for us, and he will answer and say to you, I do not know you, where you are from, then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets, verse 27. But he will say, I do not know you. Where you are from, depart from me, all you what? Workers of what? Of iniquity. Workers of iniquity. Did you notice something? God has, must have a different definition of iniquity. 
in this context, in this passage, iniquity is not being known by God and not knowing Him. That is the heart of iniquity. You can be one who keeps that checklist of do's and notes and don'ts to a T. I mean, you cross out every box. In fact, you might go as far as being so self-disciplined that, that, you, that you keep God's moral law, but yet know not God. You're living in iniquity and sin. Ellen G. White wrote these words in the classic Great Desire of Ages, page 309. I love what she wrote here. Many take it for granted that they are Christians simply because they subscribe to certain theological tenets. Men may profess faith in the truth, but sinful men can become righteous only as they have faith in God and maintain a vital connection with Him. It's that last phrase that I want to put in the spotlight. They maintain a vital connection with Him. That is what defines authentic Christianity. Not subscribing to certain theological tenets, but maintaining a vital connection with Him. Every witness by a professed Christian to any postmodern ought to be one of a vital connection with Jesus. That ought to characterize or define our witness to postmodern men and women. But sadly, it's not like that. You see, in every church, there are two classes of people, two classes of members, you could say, converted and unconverted. And in Matthew 13, they're called the wheat and the tares. And what Jesus is communicating through this parable in Matthew chapter 13 is that the converted and unconverted will coexist in every church until the time of the harvest, also known as the time of the end. And you and I know that we are even now living in the time of the end. Jesus said you'll coexist in every church. Jesus said that those who are genuine brethren grow together with those who are false brethren and let those who are loyal to God and his cause grow together with those who are disloyal to God and his cause. Grow together. The Apostle Paul encountered these two classes of people all the time. In 2 Corinthians 11, several of the dangers he, he, just, he faced in his life included perils in the city, perils in the wilderness, perils in the sea, and don't miss this now, perils among false brethren, he adds to this list. Jesus said, let them grow together. In fact, in that same chapter, Paul warned, as an apostle minister of the gospel himself, of false prof, uh, apostles and ministers of Satan, he calls them. Again, Jesus said, let them grow together. These are individuals in the body. Speaking to the church elders from Ephesus, Paul warned in Acts 20 that, they also, that also from among yourselves men will rise up, speaking perverse things from among yourselves. Jesus said, let them grow together. Let them grow together. 
And Ellen G. White wrote in Testimonies to Ministers and Gospel Workers, page 46, while the Lord brings into the church those who are truly converted, Satan will at the same time bring persons who are not converted into its fellowship. If Satan and Christ were doing that then, how much more are they doing that today? Now that we're even closer to the coming of Christ, and the controversy, great controversy, is to intensify rather than diminish as we approach the coming of Christ. So why am, where, where am I going with this? I don't, know, I don't know if you're catching where I'm going with this. As, 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 I, as, I, as I'm, I'm, I'm painting this picture of how both the unconverted and converted are within the body, how the Lord brings those who are truly converted and Satan brings those who are unconverted into its fellowship. Indeed, postmodernism is not just something that is kept in check outside of the church. Indeed, postmodernism has crept into the church through what has been termed, among other terms, the emerging or emergent church movement. It takes its name from the idea that as the culture changes, a new church should emerge in response. And in this case, it is a response by various church leaders to the current of postmodernism. But little do they realize that the boat in the ocean, though we are in the world, we must not be of the world. We are in the world. We can't run and hide. We need to recognize the context that we live in. We are in the ocean deep. This ship of the gospel, this ship that we know as the body of Christ, the church, we're in the boat. We're in the world. We're in the deep sea. We were created, designed to be here. However, when the water seeps in, the boat begins to sink. And the emerging church movement falls into line with the basic postmodern thinking in that it is about experience over reason, spirituality over religion, images over words, outward over inward, feelings over truth, etc., etc., etc. Now, while there is not yet a standard of method of doing church, among the groups choosing to take on a postmodern mindset, they do embrace postmodernist thinking, which eventually leads to a very liberal, loose translation of the Bible. Thus, in turn, lends to liberal doctrine and theology. For example, because experience is valued more highly than reason, then truth becomes relative even within the guise of a Christianity. The church has a problem. And so how does it go about attracting worshipers from the new postmodern age? Have we come to find how to truly appeal to the postmodern person and to draw them into our worship services. We are in the world. We can't run and hide. So how do we embrace? How do we connect? How do we reach? How do we begin? 
and seeking ways to witness to a changing culture around us without utilizing ways which will compromise the truth of the gospel in any way. The postmodern person has been through the best and worst of the modern age. That's why they've embraced it whole, wholeheartedly, hook, line, and sinker. They've, they've embraced the best and the worst, and now they're looking for something beyond it. So here's the crux of the challenge. While we as an Adventist church believe that dispensing biblically sound information will address issues and justify our theological positions, all the information, information of the world, in the world, will ultimately not appeal to the postmodern worshiper. As Greg Los, Los, Los Calzo in his book Apologetic Preaching points out in the context of postmodernism, he says this, this is, is interesting. People appear so unsatisfied with their lives. Is that true though? So unsatisfied with their lives. What is wrong? Information, 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 transmitting information has not touched their soul's longings for significance. People long for spiritual experiences that break them out of their routines. Postmodernism is driving us to crave the simpler things that ultimately make us who we are as human beings. Not only do postmoderns crave meaning, they crave for that which is greater than themselves. A living, vibrant, transcendent God who is reaching out and touching their lives and the lives of people around them. So while the modernist needs to hear doctrines because it's, it's satisfied, appeals to their reason so that their faith is grounded in knowing what and why they believe what they believe, postmodern worshipers have had it with information and dogma. They seek the spiritual message the Bible offers and they earnestly seek to fellowship with others who have found a richer experience in their own life in Christ. In other words, discovering that the teachings of the Bible have enriched my life, have made my life more significant and richer and more fulfilling and joyful and it's what their heart longs. Their interest is what difference has it made in your life? How has it made you a better person? How has it impacted the lives of your children? How are you as a parent? What, what have you seen in the lives of your children that satisfies you as a parent and raising them up in your truth, in your world, in your context? You know, as somebody Adventists, we have the 28 fundamental beliefs but if we were to examine each one of them and see it through the lens of what postmoderns are looking for and asking and the questions they're asking and answering their questions using our fundamental beliefs, as somebody added, is we have distinct doctrines that are uniquely, I would say, suitable to postmoderns. It will, it will be satisfying. It will be something that will, that will cause their heart's cravings to find satisfaction. And that will be our focus for our fourth and final seminar. We'll take a look at who 
what we believe as Seventh-day Adventists, taking our fundamental doctrines, a select few, we wouldn't have time, but taking our doctrines to be able to, 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 to present them, to, to unveil them in, in a way that answers the questions that postmoderns are actually asking. So often we find ourselves presenting and giving answers that, to questions that they're not asking. But when we appeal to the questions that they are, the Spirit of God takes those words of life. And because it's done in a full awareness of the context that we're dealing with, God does great and mighty things. And so with that thought in mind, I invite you to bow your heads with me as we come to a close with prayer. Father in heaven, Lord Jesus, Lord, it is quite a thrilling experience to be able to, to get on board with the current of the Holy Spirit working among the people that live all around us. It's exciting to, to, to go with the current of the Holy Spirit's work in the hearts and minds of people. And it's exciting to be able to be firsthand witnesses of transformation when we apply and approach the context that we're reaching out to in ways that are fitting, that are suitable, that are appropriate, that are effective. Lord, we simply want to be wise soul winners. We want to be soul winners that make best use of time because time is of the essence. And we pray, Lord, that you would continue to instill within our hearts that fire, that fire in our bones, ignited now, Lord, ignited right now. We ask for it. And we pray that you would continue to equip us with everything that we need to bring glory to your name. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. This message was recorded at the GYC conference by many or by few in Louisville, Kentucky. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to challenge and inspire young people to take a sacrificial initiative for Christ. To download other resources like this, visit us online at gycweb.org.